you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for joining us today. And glad to be back uh, here at uh, at uh, Take Two, the host chair of KPCC. All right, coming up, uh, the state tapped Blue Shield to help with the vaccine rollout, despite California County's uh, resistance to it. Uh, one reason is that uh, Governor Gavin Newsom goes way, uh, way back, actually, with the insurance provider. We'll tell you more. That's coming up just ahead. But first, uh, we're going to catch up on the COVID-related news from the past few days. And we're turning the corner on vaccinations. And there's also a new one on the horizon to help. At least it's uh, new to a lot of us because the rest of the world, at least parts of it, have been uh, have been having it. So now schools only have to keep kids three feet apart instead of six as long as they wear a mask. So there's a lot to get into with COVID-19 and the pandemic. And we're going to bring in one of our experts. That's Paula Cannon. She's a professor of virology at the University of Southern California's Keck School of Medicine. Paula, good to talk to you again. Hey, hi there. Eh? All right. Now, this morning, uh, news came out about how the AstraZeneca vaccine performed in U.S. clinical trials. And right off the bat, Paula, the, the information appears promising. You're the expert. Give us uh, the top line details. Yeah, no, it does look good. So this is like, um, you know, what they call an interim report. So it's kind of like a progress report. But it's a really big trial. They've got about 32,000 people in it, and it's been mostly done in the USA. And it's good news. You know, um, basically, the vaccine looks to be about 80% effective overall in, you know, preventing any type of COVID symptoms. And importantly, it's 100% effective in preventing serious um, disease or death. And the other thing in this trial that is kind of different than the other trials is that it had a lot of older people also enrolled, and they saw just the same good, strong protection in this um, group of older people. So I think it's really good news all around. On those two numbers, Paula, the 79% overall efficacy versus the mm-hmm. 100% efficacy against a hospitalization and uh, and severe um, severe disease, What's the what's the difference? Is that, are we talking the twenty percent left over that gets the hundred percent protection against severe disease? <laughs> no, it's it's really complicated because what you measure in a vaccine trial efficacy doesn't completely translate to saying you know now I've got a twenty percent chance of of getting infected okay. because um you know your your risk of getting infected is a combination of how good your vaccine is but also frankly you know how likely you are to be exposed to COVID so. I always take these efficacy measures and just say, well, you know, the actual real world situation is likely to be better. And um, and we're starting to see that, you know, as we're vaccinating more people, we're starting to get, if you like, real world information. And, uh, and, and all of the vaccines so far are holding up very well. So what's the likelihood then, you think, that uh, this will be the next vaccine to get approved for use in the U.S.? Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's, um, you know, looking at that data, it's quite likely that, you know, AstraZeneca will go to the FDA quite soon to ask for an emergency use authorization. That's the process. And I think they'll probably get approved. And what's kind of interesting is is the question of, will we need it? Because um, even on a very, you know, fast um, sort of timeline to get approval, it's not going to be here before probably May 
And we've heard from President Biden that he said with just the three vaccines we already have, Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson, that he expects there's going to be enough vaccines available in May for everyone who wants it. So we may be in the glorious situation of actually, you know, it's kind of like, you know, uh, like AstraZeneca will be the cheese course after dessert. Right, we'll be like, yeah. no, yeah, thanks, but actually we're, we're good. You know, yeah, we that, don't need you. That would be four, right? And I know the U.S. has been uh, shipping out some uh, AstraZeneca vaccine to different countries around the world mm -hmm. while it's waiting to be approved here. Um, yeah. I'm wondering, Paula, do, do, you, do you think at all that there is uh, any kind of worry among people like yourself that the bad press or the kind of uh, tough news that AstraZeneca vaccine has had in the last few weeks might get people to think, well, I don't want that one, if that's the only one available. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, and we're already seeing these sort of vaccine wars. I mean, honestly, people say to me, which one would you prefer? And I'm like, Lordy, you know, whichever one they've got in yeah. the syringe when I when I turn up. I mean, we're sort of, you know, they, these trials all got done at sort of different times. So the absolute numbers, while 79% sounds like a very concrete number. It it kind of shouldn't be taken that way. I think the good news is that way beyond our wildest expectations, all of these vaccines so far are massively outperforming what we expected. And they're all going to protect you 100% from serious illness and death. And with a high degree of probability, we'll probably just completely protect you from any infection. So gosh, you know, just get whichever one you can. They're, they're all going to be good. Now, we've talked about coronavirus variants before. City of Pasadena has identified a patient with the UK variant. Uh, can you remind us, uh, Professor, how contagious that might be and, and how effective that the vaccine is against it? Yes, the UK variant, close to my heart. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, it's definitely here in the US. I think there's there's been about 500 cases in California that we know about. And um, with these vaccines, with these, sorry, with these variants, we don't always know um, which ones they are because you have to do this extra test called sequencing to find out. But I think the data about the UK variant says that it does spread more easily and gets transmitted more quickly, maybe even as much as 50% more transmissible. So, you know, it, it's a concern that it's here. But again, you know, the good news is that all the things that we know that stop even the, um, you know, the vanilla <laughs> variants of the virus are all going to also stop even a more infectious and more transmissible strain like the UK variant. Before we get to a question from a listener, you said uh, it, it, it can be a concern. Is it a concern against the return to normal that, because it seems like we're rounding that corner, Professor, we're so close to that, that I think people get uh, concerned over, over that not maybe happening when we think it might. Sure. And I think, you know, we're all remaining, you know, um, keeping an eye on everything. Obviously, what we don't want to see in an ideal world is is the virus evolving even in a small way to be more transmissible or even to have a slight resistance to antibodies so from people who've previously been infected or people who've been vaccinated so mm. absolutely we're all you know really keeping watch over that but i think the good news is that no matter how this virus changes it can still be prevented by a you know all the things that we know you know, to do, you know, mask wearing, social distancing, yeah. small groups being outdoors. And then we also have this massive weapon in our arsenal now of, of vaccination. And as we get more people vaccinated, the, the, these viruses, no matter what variants they throw at us, are really going to, you know, have nowhere to go.
Now, when it comes to case numbers going down, one of our listeners uh, wrote in a question about uh, that in relation to the amount of testing that's happening. And here's a question, quote, I'm pretty concerned that the COVID stats for infections are starting to degrade because most testing centers are being converted to vaccination centers. Not to refer to a previous national official, but if you are not testing, then how can you really know that your infection rate is going down? Is your infection rate only going down because your volume of testing is going down? Professor? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think I can reassure your listener. You know, certainly some of the mega sites like Dodgers Stadium are no longer doing the testing because they're doing the vaccination but we've also got way more kind of local options, you know, your local CVS and Walgreens and, and many workplaces are set up to test people. For example, at my university, USC, we test all students weekly and every employee who needs to come on the campus. And then we've got like, you know, take home mail in um, tests that people can do. So there's lots more options. And, and actually, the numbers are still really good. So in, in California, in this past week, we've we've done over a million tests. And only 1.6% of them were positive, which is the low number we feel good about. But, you know, a million tests is, is not to be, you know, yeah. is not to be dismissed. It's a pretty high number still. We're talking to Paula Cannon, virologist at USC's Keck School of Medicine. Now, over the weekend, the state of California adopted uh, new guidelines from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention about social distancing and young kids. CDC now says uh, a three-foot distance between kids is okay as long as uh, they're wearing masks. Now, I should say, uh, Professor, the agreement between the teachers and uh, the Los Angeles Unified School District has a six-foot rule baked in, so that won't have an impact on those campuses this spring. But what are the implications of this when it comes to schools that do not have that baked in or, or for school in the fall possibly to have uh, a three feet rule yeah no it's a huge move for practicality isn't it i was yeah. i was thinking about this and maybe the best visual is you know the difference between a three foot and a six foot spacing is like the difference between all the kids walking around with a hula hoop around their waist and a, and a three foot spacing means their hula hoop is a six foot hoop but six foot spacing means it's a 12 foot hoop so it just <laughs> yeah, you know right. it just makes these classrooms now practical you i think uh I think the math is that you can fit four times as many kids in a classroom if you reduce the spacing from six to three. So as long as that's combined with, you know, high mask wearing adherence, um, good ventilation and, you know, smaller and stable groups of, of students with, with the option to do rapid contact tracing, then I, I think it's a very safe strategy. Now, not all families uh, have responded to that survey, but it appears that less than half of the students in LAUSD are going to go back to campus. Uh, but for those families who are sending their kids back, uh, Professor, how confident are you that uh, they should be uh, worried about any potential risks? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's an individual decision. Um, you know, COVID is low risk to children themselves, but an infected child can spread it to the rest of the family. So maybe you know, think about are there older relatives living in the house? And if so, please get them vaccinated so that if your kid did get infected, that, you know, really reduces the risk to the rest of the family. But I think in general, you know, we're seeing that schools, when they have these, um, all these, you know, procedures in place, are actually, school is a very low risk activity. So again, I would say as long as you feel confident in the measures that your school, your school district has in place and that your kids will understand and follow the guidelines, then I, I think you can you can actually feel fairly confident. And, and clearly, it's an incredibly important thing to get our kids back at school at this stage. What about this, Professor? Because I was thinking, OK, so let's just say the summer goes on and, and more people, more people get vaccinated. And that's obviously a good thing. But say I haven't yet. But I know that more people are. Is it okay for me to plan a vacation, <laughs> maybe in August or September? 
Oh boy, you you know, get vaccinated, okay? That, that's well, what no, I'm I do. So, yes, yeah. I realize. Yes, that's a given. Yes. But I'm saying, if if I'm still not yet, and I know that mm-hmm. lots of people are, is it start is it starting to get safer for me to think about that? All right, all right. Um, so what you have to do is think about both the risk to you as a non-vaccinated person, and then the risk from you, depending where you're going. So sometimes you just have to really look at the numbers. You know, we are getting lower rates here in California. So, you know, come August, if the rates are still as low and lower, that's good. Think about where you're going. You want to be going somewhere that also has equally low rates. And then, you know, frankly, just be aware of the rules at your destination. You know, do you need to quarantine when you get there? Do you need to get a negative test before you go? And and please don't go somewhere where a lot of people aren't following the rules, eh? So, you know, we yeah. are so much better than Miami, aren't we? So, you know, don't go there. Um, but I, I'm also, <laughs> also going to pick up on something you, you, Dan, you know, you just said about vaccination, because although there are no special rules or changes at the moment yet for vaccinated individuals, I think it's likely that there will be. You know, vaccinated people with proof of vaccination will be able to get out of a testing or quarantining requirement. Mm-hmm. And some, you know, places may even require you to have a vaccine for you even to be allowed to come. So, you know, if you, if you are thinking about getting vaccinated and you're maybe hesitating, I would just say when it's your turn, don't hesitate. You know, uh, the potential to travel um, effortlessly and safely should be a pretty good incentive. Okay, I knew the answer was generally no, Professor. I just <laughs> I wanted to be a little devil's advocate on this real quick. Oh, and one thing real quick. I, I saw that Cedar sinai had some research into progesterone therapy for men. Uh, what did that find quickly? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's based on the fact that, you know, men have a worse outcome than women and postmenopausal women also have a worse outcome than younger women. And, and so the speculation that it might be down to differences in sex hormones, oh. progesterone, you know, progesterone is one of those sex hormones. So there was a little trial at Cedars here in L.A. that gave I think it was about 40 men uh, progesterone shots and it did improve their outcomes. Oh, and it, it probably, you know, it probably works the same way as some of the other steroid drugs we've heard about okay. as being an anti-inflammatory. That's virologist Paula Cannon with USC's Keck School of Medicine. Professor, thanks a lot. You're welcome, mate. Take care. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Amy Martinez. 
right, initially, the process of getting shots into the arms of Californians did not go smoothly. So the state pulled in Blue Shield to be a third-party administrator. That was back in January. Now, the problem is county health officials haven't been exactly eager to team up with the insurance provider. In fact, only one county out of the 58 in the state have entered into an agreement. So how did Blue Shield score a no-bid $15 million contract to oversee California's vaccine distribution? Reporter Samantha Young did some digging on this long-standing relationship that Blue Shield has with Governor Gavin Newsom. She's California politics correspondent for Kaiser Health News and Kaiser Healthline. Samantha, all right, before we get into the backstory of Governor Newsom and Blue Shield, why have counties been so critical of this agreement uh, with Blue Shield? Yeah, thank you for having me on this afternoon. Um, well, the counties are simply are scratching their heads wondering why an, a company uh, was brought on to do a job that they feel they've been trained to do and, and historically do have done for decades. It's their job to do this public health task to vaccinate Californians. They, they do this um, with other diseases out there and they know they have the contacts they know where people in their community live they know how to get vaccinations to the most vulnerable and so they just they were left wondering why is this private insurer the one to come in and and to lead this effort so it was almost as if they felt that this was just kind of put on their laps and they had to figure it out Pretty much, yeah. All right. Now, Kaiser uh, Permanente is also working with the state uh, for the vaccine rollout. What's unique about Blue Shield's position in all this? True. Um, that's. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because there's a little bit of confusion about the, uh, the role of Kaiser Permanente versus Blue Shield. And Blue Shield was given this $15 million contract. Um, Kaiser Permanente, uh, not given any money. Uh, they were given sort of a memorandum of understanding. They are just, they're being treated as a provider where they still have to, they're advising Blue Shield and they are, so they're not really doing, they're not coordinating everything like Blue Shield has been asked to do. So you mentioned the $15 million. Um, What exactly then, aside from the 15 million, although that's that's a lot, uh, what what is Blue Shield getting in exchange for being this third party administrator? You know, $15 million does sound like a lot, but in, in the wor- in the world of government contracting, it actually isn't mm. a lot. And, and so when we ask that question, uh, you, you know, it's, it's the prestige. It, mm. It's the getting their name out there. Uh, that's where you get the big bang for your buck. It's the marketing. And, you know, now when people think about California COVID vaccine, they are thinking Blue Shield. Um, that goes a long way. Yeah, I got to admit, I mean, we're talking about it. A lot of people uh, definitely had that uh, on their minds uh, when this news came down, that uh, Blue Shield is, is now a big part of this. All right, so the relationship between Gavin Newsom and Blue Shield, because in digging through uh, campaign finance data, you found that uh, Newsom and Blue Shield go way back. They go way back to his time as mayor of San Francisco. Can you tell us uh, how that first started? Uh, yeah, we did. Um, I, you know, I reported the story with my with my colleague, Angela Hart, and the two of us kind of dug through uh, the campaign data back to when Gavin Newsom was a, running for city supervisor. Uh, actually, his third term on the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco, he got his first check, uh, $500 uh, in 2002. Um, but I'd say the big, the big investment came when he was when he was mayor, and he had a homeless program that he was really trying to push. It was a little bit, no, it was a new program, con, a new concept, of really trying to get businesses involved and, and to hook up 
um, social services. Yeah. Project to, Homeless uh, Connect, right? That was the the the, pro- the project. Exactly, yeah. um, and and so they gave him a twenty five thousand dollar check, and they were there for him and really tried to to get this kind of get some money into the program, and um, that meant a lot to him. Uh, we spoke to a lot. We interviewed a lot of his allies from from that time. And over the years, uh, the Blue Shield has given to not just his homeless programs, um, but also to uh, all of his political campaigns. And uh, they've basically been there for him every step of the way as he has gone higher and higher in the political office. And 23 million, is that uh, round about the total that uh, it's uh, added up to? Yes. Yeah. $23 million. Um, And I say, but most of that has gone to his homeless initiatives. We're talking to uh, Samantha Young, California politics correspondent for Kaiser Health News and California Health Night. Now, for context, uh, Samantha, as far as lobbyists and interest groups in Sacramento, how powerful is Blue Shield? And and when it comes to how business is done in Sacramento, I mean, how typical of a relationship is the one Blue Shield has with Governor Gavin Newsom? Look, a lot of industries have some very powerful connections in Sacramento, and healthcare is one of the most influential they uh, they rely on these connections to not just get bills passed, but to to kill certain bills they don't they don't want regulations on. Um, Blue Shield they have cultivated a relationship with the governor. There's no question, and the, one of their lobbyists is one is one of the most well known lobbyists in the, in the city. So you know, I think when we spoke with uh, some of the uh, governor's advisors, they said they felt that one of the reasons that he asked Blue Shield to give them this contract, in their opinion, is because they felt that Blue Shield was a company that had proven themselves Mm -hmm. to him. It was a company that had been there for him since the beginning, that he knew they could do the job. So that just speaks to the relationship that he's had with them. And Samantha, just so any, anyone who's wondering uh, knows, is there anything unethical being looked at when it comes to this? Anything criminal at all? Or is, there, is it just kind of the way it looks is what people might have a problem with? Well, I, that's a great question. And you know, we, we did talk to a number of different sort of campaign ethics um, experts. And, you know, no, there's no quid pro quo, definitely, you know, but... It, it is all about appearances. Um, it's very hard to prove a quid pro quo when it comes to these sort of things. And I don't think that's what anybody is necessarily um, making that direct connection, but it is all about the appearance for sure. One of the things that I kept hearing when the news of this came down is that, well, it was a no-bid contract because it's an emergency. It's an emergency situation, and California doesn't have the time for for people to bid on this contract. How much does that hold water here? We've heard that a lot during this pandemic. Um, the governor has these emergency powers to issue regulations. Um, certainly, um, this was a no-bid contract that was announced in January, but it then took a couple of, I want to say at least a, a month to then finalize all of the details of the contract. Um, I don't know. I guess it could be fair, but um, I, I, I don't know. I think you could have a, a sped-up um, process, but it's certainly an argument that we have heard come out of the Newsom administration a number of times uh, in the past year. One more thing, Samantha, while we have you here. Any word if Blue Shield is is uh, throwing any money into Governor Newsom's fight against the recall? They have not 
um, put any money in since they've been given the contract. Uh, but they have given to uh, the governor's uh, ballot measure committee. Uh, they gave back in 2019 and in 2020 uh, about a total of $269,000. And that's money that the governor could use out of that ballot measure committee um, to fight the recall. That's Samantha Young, California politics correspondent for Kaiser Health News and California Healthline. Samantha, thank you. Thank you for having me on today. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. It's politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And it's food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about L.A. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. Just one look at you And I know it's gonna be Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and most places where you get your podcasts. I'm e. Martinez. Over the last week, we've heard some very moving sermons from faith leaders around Southern California reflecting on the past year and what it has all meant. These sermons have been made possible through a partnership with USC's Center for Religion and Civic Culture. So today we bring you just one more encouraging word. This one's from Reverend Mandy McDowell. She is senior minister at Los Angeles First Unified Methodist Church in downtown Los Angeles. And her sermon is titled, Suffering Does Not Have the Last Word. A little over a year ago, I was preparing to offer communion to my congregation. Los Angeles First United Methodist Church owns land on the corner of Flower and Olympic, near the Staples Center. We meet outdoors under pop-up tents in the middle of our beloved, drowsy city. And on this gray January day, our parking lot was beginning to fill up with sleek black vehicles transporting attendees to the Grammys. As I approached the first parishioner to offer him the communion elements, he whispered over the low den of traffic, Kobe Bryant is dead. As the days stretched into weeks of mourning, the news cycles continued with reports about the helicopter crash which took the lives of nine innocent people. The LA Times is reporting that retired Los Angeles Lakers basketball star Kobe Bryant has been killed in a helicopter crash. It happened this morning. Even though it has been several hours, it is still stunning to say the words that Kobe Bryant, the legendary NBA star, is dead tonight. Interspersed were ongoing updates about the virus, which was slowly starting to appear in the United States. For many Angeleans, we couldn't imagine 
anything worse than a beloved sports hero in the prime of his life, dying alongside his daughter and so many of their friends. As the flowers began to fade and the murals began to dry, the tears of mourning shifted into the quiet dread that the deadly strain of the coronavirus was not being contained. March 15, 2020 was the last day my congregation met for worship in person. Since then, we have moved from our tents in the parking lot to our homes for those who are blessed to have them. I went from being a street preacher to being a televangelist. Now, we are in exile, and our makeshift tabernacle is packed away in the pod that sits on our lot. We have traded passing the peace for greetings in the chat box. The Christian tradition has just begun the season of Lent. This is our opportunity to enter into the wilderness just as Jesus did at the start of his ministry. The season is typically dedicated to spiritual disciplines of fasting, prayer, and austerity. We're invited to give something up, just as Christ sacrificed on our behalf. But this year, it felt wrong. It felt wrong to invite my congregation to give something up, because we've already given up so much. Our health, our security, our work, our normal ways of being. The grip that sorrow has on our hearts is unyielding, and we're living through an ongoing trauma. The prayer of my heart is less often one of praise and more often an echo of the Israelites' plea with God, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? The Christian tradition is steeped in suffering. We believe that God entered the world as Jesus. We believe that God lived, suffered, and died so that none of our human experiences would happen outside of God's own experience. God chose to suffer because we suffer. But we also believe that suffering does not have the last word on our experience. The scripture says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I continue to hope that even if what we've lost can't be restored, that we can be saved from our despair. Rather than being defined by our suffering, we have dedicated our Lenten discipline to hope. This year, we are choosing to be defiant in our joy and subversive in our hope because we are defined by who we are as God's beloved children, not by what we have lost. Amen. 
That was Reverend Mandy McDowell with her sermon, Suffering Does Not Have the Last Word. You can read her text and that of several faith leaders in our community at crcc.usc.edu. That's crcc.usc.edu. You'll see a report pinned to that main page titled Bridges Over Troubled Waters. And we're going to close the show on a bit of a sad note. Lakers Hall of Fame forward Elgin Baylor died of natural causes today in Los Angeles. Baylor was born in Washington, D.C., and the story goes he was named Elgin after his father looked at the watch he was wearing to see what time he came into the world. See, Elgin was a popular brand of watches at the time, and actually on the court, Baylor was as dependable as those watches were on people's wrists. He was an 11-time All-Star, averaging 27 points and 13 rebounds per game for his career. Baylor spent his entire 14 years with the Lakers, first couple of seasons in Minneapolis before moving with the team to L.A. in 1960. He and Jerry West teamed up to make the Lakers one of the most exciting shows the NBA had to offer. They made eight appearances in the league finals but fell short each and every time. And the worst part is that they lost to the Boston Celtics in seven of those series. Baylor retired in 1971. That was a year before the Lakers won their first championship in Los Angeles. He later went on to become the general manager of the L.A. Clippers for 22 seasons. His wife Elaine and daughter Crystal were with him when he died today at the age of 86. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.